Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special edition of the Royal Blue Podcast. Today we have a familiar voice, a familiar face uh, as well around Goodison, but here in a slightly different guise, Gavin Buckland is the man at the centre of the table, centre of discussion with myself and Dave Prentice, because we are here to talk about his book, Money Can't Buy Us Love, Everson in the 1960s, and so myself and Preno, for the next half an hour or so, we'll pick Gav's brains and ask him (laughs) everything we want to know and need to know about this book, including where we can buy it and how much it costs, Gav, of course. Right, okay. the, the That's important bit. The important bit. <laughs> yeah. um, I think, first of all, Gav, why did you want to write about this particular subject and, 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 and the characters involved? Um, uh, well, the first thing I think, and Prano will confirm this, for, considering our, our, our club is, you know, if you know your history, mm. uh, we must be historically the most unrecorded major yeah. football league club in terms of books on the club. There's, lot, there's books on biographies and autobiographies and sort of, books with big players and interview, but in the terms of a history going from point A to point B, there just isn't anything, you know. So that was the first thing. Um, that was the first sort of uh, criteria. And the second one is, starts off in the 60s um, because it was our, as a decade, it was our most successful decade. Um, it was a diverse decade for Everton in, in terms of which I tried to bring out in the book. It was a lot of good, great stuff, but a lot of bad stuff as well. Uh, we've done there, which have shone a light on. And it, it, t- it took place, obviously, the whole Mersey Millionaire thing in a time of great cultural, economic and political change. The 1960s was probably you know, the pivotal decade of the, of the 20th century. And it's no coincidence that I say in the back that um, I think I think the Guardian said 1963 was the, the first year of the modern world, right. and there's, there's no coincidence that you know nice coincidence that we won the title in a way that had not really been won before in 1963. So, it, it, and that's what I've tried to do in the book is weave all them cultural, economic Liverpool being the centre of that, of course, in in terms of cultural terms, and football and threads together. You know, because it's not just about Evan; it's it's the environment in which. Yeah, the club was operating at the time. To be honest, I I thought I knew about Everton in the 60s uh, because you know I've read whatever's out there about Everton in that decade. Contrary to popular opinion, I wasn't around then, you know, <laughs> yeah. so I didn't remember it. My, my first game was 1975, but I'd heard a lot about the School of Science, Paul Harvey Kendall, you know, the famous come from behind FA Cup victory in 66, yeah. which I've watched. Whatever's out there on YouTube, the, the very, very limited, you know, sort of clips of Alex Young. And I thought I knew about this wonderfully classy, um, artistic football team that, you know, was underestimated and underrated, really, uh, throughout that decade. Everyone talks about Man United and Best Law and Charlton. Everyone talks about the great Spurs pushing run side. Not many talk about Everton. 
So I found this in education. A great book, by the way. Um, I've got two on the go at the moment. A Jack Reacher one, which, God, I'm absolutely grinding through. It's slow as anything. Never go back. Don't bother buying that. Uh, (laughs) Buy this instead. I flew through this. Absolutely loved it. But it educated me. Um, I mean, as the title suggests, Money Can't Buy Us Love, Everton were not a popular football team in the 60s for many reasons, apart from, you know, being Mersey millionaires and trying to buy success, which is what the London press was saying. The football fans at the time were... um, shall we say, unpleasant, Uh, wrecking trains, causing fights, throwing darts at Tottenham goalkeepers, allegedly. I mean, uh, you know, Gav explores that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Whether it's a myth or whether it actually happened or not, I don't know. But as a result, those semicircles were introduced uh, behind the goals. And it just gave me a completely different insight into the way that Everton were perceived throughout that decade, yeah. which I really enjoyed, you know, in a perverse kind of way. Yeah, I, I like how, uh, pardon the pun, Prano's comments there, that likewise I thought I knew a lot, but it's when you get into the detail. And and I think some of the other things is, because it's now 50, 60 years ago, um, is there's a lot of narratives that have been built up over the years that when you actually do a check and balance about them, they just went through, yeah. or like you know, you know, certain people did this. No, they didn't. Certain people without, said that without giving away too much of what's yeah, in the book yeah, is the I, one you can give an example. I'd, I'd say the, the general say impression of say Alex Young relationship with Harry Catter yeah. was that Alex and Harry obviously long gone, uh, you know, and Alex sadly passed away a year or two back. Is was that Alex was hard done by by Harry, you know that, and there's stories about him not giving a hundred thousand pound that he was due and all this type of thing, you know, and that Harry did everything to you know keep Young out the side. But when you have a look at the facts, actually that wasn't the case at all. For example, Alex said that Harry stopped him going to play in America once he'd finished at Everton, um, and actually that wasn't true. Uh, Alex phoned the, the the boss of the New York Generals, I think they were called, <laughs> and said, "No, I can't come over because I'm homesick." Which bear in mind, Alex had. Refused to move to Sheffield because yeah. he was homesick. Makes a lot of sense, you know. And he, Everton, for example, took a ten grand hit on Alex Young's transfer to get him out, out of Everton so he could get two thousand pound off Glen Torrens as part of the deal with that. So they're actually losing ten thousand pound to benefit Alex. Where Alex over the years has said he was hard done by by the club and hard done by by Catrick, and that's just not true. It, you know, there was bare flashpoints, I think. And I think when Alex left, only Brian Lebone had played more times for Everton under Catrick than him, you know. And I'll, and saying the book, Dave, as you know, Harry changed the formation of the team twice to keep Alex in the team, mm-hmm. moving from four in the old Star WM in the early sixties to four two four, so we could play Alex the centre forwards role with Fred Pickering, and then change to four three three to play Alex in the zipper role. So that's a there was an element of truth in what Alex was saying, but when you have a look at the facts over the period of years, the, the general message that he gave out just wasn't 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 true at all. You know, Harry and the club went out of the way on their on occasions for him. You know, there are, there are a couple of things in there that I'm not going to give too much away. I mean, the the identity of the manager that John Moore's wanted as Everton boss yeah. prior to Harry Catterick raised my eyebrows and uh, you'll need to buy the book uh, to, to discover that. But the one I am going to give away, because it's just such a great story, how close Everton came to buying Ferenc Pushkas. Yeah, yeah. I think, wow, how did that happen? Yeah. And it did. It was very, very close and you know, the Football League basically barred it in the end, didn't they? And John Moores was furious. Yeah, and on two occasions, yeah, in the late 50s and the, and the how mid-60s. How old Pushkas have been at the time? He, was, he would have been near his peak at the late 50s. Wow. We're getting on, it's sort of just over his peak and, he, and Moore said we tried to get him again in the mid-60s when his peak had gone. He's still playing for Real Madrid, but, you know, we could still do a job. And there's, there's 
one of the things about and one of the fascinating things about the book, which I, you know, when you do things like this, you, in retrospect, think I think you know I should have done more on this or that I overplayed that. Is Evans' relationship with the football league and Moore's in particular the way in the football league and how how they were very much like. Um, you see Man City's battles with UEFA over certain things and rules and regulations mm. and where you can get players from and how players are paid and stuff. Um, it's been all... And, and Evan Moore's relationship with the Football League in the early 60s was like that. That they'd never met, they'd never had to deal, that gentle world of football and the, you know, the, the car dealer yeah. a chairman. They'd never had to deal with someone with so much power and influence who had a lot of powerful people working for him. And I think, consequently, Moore's stopped a few things happening in football because it <laughs> suited Evan, mm. you know. And 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 he was frustrated over the way the authorities could not allow, you know, foreign players to come into the club. He was moaning about, you know, um, Real Madrid being backed by the Spanish government and all this. With some of the stuff that's still being mentioned to this day, mm. you know. And Moore's was onto that in the in the late fifties, early sixties. You I know, think he upset the apple cart in that respect because he'd come from. A, a more corporate, if you like, background, absolutely, and, yeah, and, yeah. and perceived and looked at the way of running football clubs differently to how the football league had previously dealt with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the football league was very antiquated. He was particularly frustrated over the fact that um, every club in the top two divisions had a vote, and the bottom uh, two divisions had um, a number of votes, smaller number of votes. So to get change, change never happened because all the smaller clubs would gang up. Yes. On the bigger clubs, and he said that wasn't good enough. You know, you had to have an elite. You had, you had to have a, a group of super clubs at the top, of which he obviously wanted Everton. And so he was frustrated that you could never change things because of the, the voting, the voting structure within the football league. Plus, he, he found you know the Home Office rules on you know immigration regarding footballers and football league rules as well. He, he just thought they they just stifled. Um, um, sort of the development of English football. I suspect that led to our poor European record in the 60s because I felt that they always fight with two hands behind the back. Mm. And, and I felt that they didn't commit themselves to European football because they played in Milan very early on mm. in the early 60s. You had like Luis Suarez, the original Luis Suarez. <laughs> it cost like 210,000 quid. And our most expensive signing was like Tony Kay, it was 55,000, you know. So you had all these expensive imports that they were allowed to, to bring in. And, uh, and become, they also spent lots of money on referees. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, let's talk about that <laughs> as well. Yeah, and um, our our rules didn't allow for that type of thing. And he felt it's they were fighting with the hands tied behind the back. Right. And I suspect that sort. I I suspect that sort of psyche crept into the club the way it regarded European football. Harry was distrustful of it. He just felt two legs was not real football. Football games over ninety minutes. And he'd say that the likes of Inter Milan and Benfica couldn't survive in the football league, which is which was rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> With all due respect, of course they could. Um, and um, that that was where some of Moore's beliefs. Yeah, I think he was right on a couple of them. I think they damaged the club a little bit. I think um, one one of the undercurrents in the book is that that desire for success in the end became quite counterproductive and you know dangerous. I think. Uh, and even even in the late seventies, people were saying that. I mentioned Colin Malham said in the, the Sunday Telegraph in nineteen seventy seven, they pointed Billy Bingham after Moses sacked him that um, that you know Everton's sort of obsession with success has been long term has had a damaging effect on the club, and, and he was right. 
Do you think that, so? So coming back to that theme of, of the Mersey millionaires, and 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 just to paraphrase a bit, he said that John Moore's had obviously helped Everton to spend in money with such naked short-term ambition and ruthlessness that it ultimately sent like shockwaves to English football. Yeah, yeah. Is is did the way that we operated and, and John Moore's took us into a into a new kind of sphere of, of thinking and, and and opportunity? Did it did Everton in, in that era set a precedent for what has been to come? Fairly recently with Chelsea and Abramovich yeah. and Man City, etc. Was that the first time really? Did? Absolutely, absolutely. I, you know, I say that you know they created the template for the modern football club, not just the modern big club, but the the all clubs within the football league, um, where there's just a desire for success, mm. um, whether in the, the the top level or in Division Two. It's why some dare like dare I say some football league clubs in lower divisions, they've got themselves into financial trouble. It, it, it was shock, shockwaves because, um, A, because I'd say the, the way Moores was challenging the authorities, but it was it was the public ambition of the owner, which had never been seen before. There'd been clubs with money before, but it was that public ambition and that ruthlessness of the owner um, that had not really been seen in English football before. I'd say, a quote him in his opening press conference to Harry Catrick, where... One of the members of the press said, you've just sacked Johnny Carey after finishing fourth. What would you do to Harry Katzik if he finishes fourth? And more said, well, I'll sack him as well, you know. And that, 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 that type of thing, I'd just never been seen before in English football. A, from a chairman and just generally from a football club. You know, Prano can remember the days, I know, not the 60s, just... But, <laughs> Managers could say manager club for years without yeah. really doing anything. You know, nice. the odd cup run and but same mid table and they're just staying oh, in yeah, jobs. Yeah, totally. There was no real challenge from chairman and owners to be successful. You so, know? But surely there was of that era as there is now. Was there not demand from the stands and the terraces though, or was it not as vociferous as it might be now, or, or is it a, a case of modern day football fans have a platform that? Fans of that era did not. I think this is a chicken egg, chicken egg thing. I'm I'm convinced that you know Dave alluded before to like the bad behaviour of Everton fans, and and people put that link together that that demand for success on the pitch. I mean, we were quite a tough team in sixty two, sixty three. They could play, but that demand for success led to a certain amount of ruthlessness on the pitch, right. which bred sort of I'm not saying, anxiety, frustration. On the terraces, you know, impatience perhaps on the terraces, and that manifested itself in Hula. And we had a rise and force across the park. As yeah, well, yeah. They suddenly became rivals, yeah. and they'd been in second division for ten years. And Absolutely, been an issue. And 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 that was that was the irony was is Liverpool fans could be as dangerous as Everton supporters, especially in away games. But it was that feel good factor of the cop that yeah. was sort of broadcast nationally, mm. put a sort of protective blanket over their behaviour. Right. Even though their behaviour. Was 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 on occasions matched Everton fans, because they came from the same city, they were the same group of people, so they're going to behave in the same way. And I talk talk about talk about the the, the social aspect of Merseyside and its effect on crowd behaviour in the sixties, and um, so Liverpool fans are always going to um, behave in the same way as Everton supporters, but they never got the same coverage. We were banned up by the trains, makes front page news in the Daily Express. Liverpool bands on the trains doesn't get any news at all, you know. So, mm. yeah, so we created this reputation around ourselves as a club and um, that's stuck, unfortunately. Um, and but, some would say some, some of it is still there, not on the negative side of it, but... Uh, and and it was... It bred a certain amount of, I think, paranoia, I think, distrust of authorities and, and sort of 
being being a very close knit club. Was there resentment then in that respect, or of of, of people of us, of the, of the authorities from us? In most, most certainly, right. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then that would feed into the terraces. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure of that. I'm sure of that. Um, and it, but it, it was the effect that also it became quite, quite isolated. I think. I mean, and and there are those who say that we are still a little bit like that to this day, I and mean, it certainly meant that we never got our dues as well mm. by some of the stuff we played in the sixties. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing that you know, so the, the most depressing aspect of the whole, you know, the decade for me was that having gone through the first half of the decade winning trophies and being a successful team, but not really getting praise for it uh, because the London press especially resented the fact that Everton were too ruthless, they were too physical. Uh, it was like win at all cost mentality. When that evolved and Harry Catterick created his second side, which was like so easy on the eye, so great to watch and played, you know, football from the gods, if you like, between 1967 and 1970, that, that finally culminated in winning the league with 66 points, which was only one shy of the record at the time. Uh, absolutely sensational win. And it was overshadowed. I mean, everybody seemed to focus on Leeds' unfortunate demise because they were going for everything and yeah. fell at you know, the final hurdle in everything. And we had the Mexico World Cup looming as well. And so, yeah, this great title triumph that should have been the crowning glory yeah. of Catterick's career was largely and overshadowed. A question for you both of you on then. Is that because Catterick is, is you know, somebody obviously not of, of the era, but somebody yeah. whose, whose perception of, of Catterick was he was not a media man. He wasn't a media no. darling by any stretch of the imagination. Do you think that played a, a part in that? Yeah, I think definitely he wasn't voted manager there by the press, which normally went to the title winner manager yeah. or the the European Cup winner manager. You know, went to Dom Levy, he didn't win anything, and <laughs> had he won it in great style, he's just like playing great football. Even Brian Clough said it was great football, yeah. you know. So you must be doing something right. Yeah, I think that that was definitely the case. Harry's and this this ultimately sort of led to his downfall. I think Harry's attitude and sort of distrust of the press was great when you were playing winning football and finishing as champions and paying a cup files. When things went on the slide after 70, because the book does go up to 73 when he was sacked, that went against him. Right. You know, that he had no friends in the press, so people were quite quite happy to stick the knife into him, you know. And I think, um, yeah, the def- undoubtedly, the, the club, um, the club's attitude, not just Harry, but, you know, they, didn't, they said that they liked television, they quite have to be on television. I'm not sure whether that was the case. They just, um, and they won the title. You know, they should have won the title against West Brom in '70 on match of the day, Saturday afternoon, in front of 10 million viewers on, you know, on on sort of glorious technical that on BBC One, and it was a freezing cold Wednesday night, first of April, because the season finished early as well. Because as yeah. Pano said, everything was overshadowed by the Mexico World Cup, and what we got a couple of grainy grainy news film of. It is in black and white. You isn't can, it? You, nothing exists anymore. Does yeah. think There's like a, a, a twelve-second clip exists on YouTube yeah. of the post-match celebrations, and that's it. And, and everything over them was overshadowed by Leeds' quest for the treble because the same night they played Celtic, didn't they, in the Battle of Britain? You know, mm. um, European Cup semi-final, and everything <laughs> winning the title was just a sideshow, and that was mm. just typical of sometimes fate worked against them. Mm. But I think the club almost certainly, um, and their attitude towards the press, which not didn't just come from Harry, came from other people within the club um, went against them in terms of the way they were covered when they were successful because there's a nice line in, in the book Gav where, where and I'll paraphrase where, uh, John Moores had said that you know the club we want the best players the best coaches the best trainers the best directors so was Catrick at the time was he the best trainer out there was he was he <sighs> to, to Abramovich was he Mourinho 
Um, I th- not necessarily Moore's first choice. It was interesting. Not only did Moore's offer the job to somebody else, he offered it for five thousand quid, mm. and he, uh, Harry was quite happy to get three and a half thousand. So that shows how desperate Moore's was um, to get the other person in. Yeah, there, there, there is obvious parallels with Chelsea, but to talk about since two, Chelsea two thousand three four, where you've got Johnny Carey, who was the gentleman manager, good but not good enough, and that's Clavio Ranieri. Yeah. New owner comes in, gives their incumbent manager a year in charge to see if they're any good. They do really well finishing the top four, both of them, but then decide they need to bring somebody in who's a bit more ruthless and a bit in my, reflects my personality. So there's obviously, obviously, you know, a close parallel with what went on with Chelsea in 2003-04. And like Chelsea, you inherited a really good team Mm. as well, with really good players. I mean... Some of the players, you know, like Drogba was signed by Ranieri, I think, wasn't he? There was, so there was lots of similarities between Catacom and Mourinho. Not only the way they took over the clubs, but personality-wise mm-hmm. as well. Both can be... There's a, there's a there's a quote there, I think, from Alan Hardy, who Prano remembered was the oh, chairman show, of the yeah. Football League, who was the, you know, was the, you know, one of the major blockers, I think, to Everton. Um, and he said that a manager should be, I can't remember the exact quote, but, you know, perfect manager's ruthless. And I think he, ruthless, uh, every ruthless leader needs a hatchet man. Yeah, yeah. And and, and Hardacre was saying that, and he said every manager should be should be ruthless and, you know, distrustful of the press and stuff like this, <laughs> which fits Mourinho and Katsuk perfectly. Yeah, yeah. And so there's lots of different, you know, uh, things that I like between Katsuk and Mourinho. As indeed they say in the book, Katsuk and Bob Paisley as well. They talk about the difference between Katsuk and Shankly. But Katic and Bayes, had a lot of similarities the way they built the teams. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. In terms of, just to give maybe younger listeners a kind of reference point, John Morse came in in this period and, and was splashing the cash, so to speak. What what sort of figures were we spending on players and comparably what, what are we talking about now? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I mean, never. He spat, I mean, they were loans. He never sort of sugar daddy type thing because mm. um, he was business. You know, businessmen don't give the money away, do they? Um, well, you don't need just to buy. If you went out and bought, they bought Fred Pickering, say Alan Ball, say in the mid sixties, do a British record. Transfer fees, you know, for for Alan Ball in particular. So you're talking whatever the British record transfer yeah. fee is. That's what it was, right. you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like going out and paying sixty, seventy million pound on a midfielder. And know. there was no financial fair play. Uh, so yeah, you, could, yeah. you could spend whatever you, you wanted. It, yeah, you know. Yeah. So if you think of Alan Ball, man of the match in World Cup final, twenty ones peak years ahead of him. If he was playing for England now, how much would be worth yeah, yeah. in the transfer market? Yeah. And we went out and bought him, you know. And not for 110,000. 110,000 is not like 70 million now. But in terms of relationship to other transfer yeah. fees at the time, in, it would be. In the scale easy. of the markets. Yeah, now. yeah, absolutely. So you could you could demand. It is very similar to, you know, the. Maybe young fans remember when I say Marino came and you were buying players every week for big money. That's what Harry did for a, a year, I think, maybe at Everton. Um, but yeah, it, massive, massive fees that we paid, you know, and, and not really being seen, you know, done before, I think, to that to that level. Other clubs like Spurs have bought big, as Bruno yeah. said. Um, I, I love yeah. the little anecdotes in there as well about the players that we nearly signed. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. There's so many in there, which, which yeah. are incredible. To, you know, yeah. I mean, Joe Baker's the one that comes out over and over again. 
Um, but you know there were other. Was it was Dennis Law? Was yeah, there, they were looking. Yeah. At, they looked at Dennis Law. I don't. <clears> I don't think Harry got slagged off a little bit by the um, by the sports for not signing Dennis Law. The one that I was absolutely gutted about was uh, they could have bought Jimmy Green off in 1970, yeah. who was a with Howard probably the best uncapped player for England. And Jimmy Jimmy would have played perfectly off Joe Royal as a sort of like second striker, and Harry. And showed how his sort of powers were waning. And ten years before, how his Harry's intelligence would have, and radar would have known he was for sale and bought him. But he was twenty four hours behind uh, Stoke City, right? And Green offered already done the deal, and uh, with Stoke and Harry, not to be accused of sort of tapping anybody up, sent Alan Ball to uh, try and persuade him to uh, sign for Everton. And Jimmy, to his credit, had already agreed terms with Stoke. And he was a player in the early 70s who would have suited Everton perfectly. He would have done. And he was he was a great forward for 10 years. But you then know? he would never have signed for Man United and would never have scored that goal yeah, in the yeah. pool in the FA Cup semi final. So, <laughs> so there is a silver all the, line. All the final, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, at the same time, yeah. he could have done it for Everton, no, could and he? That was yeah. a Goodison as well, that yeah, FA Cup yeah. semi final winner. Yeah, yeah. so. Um, <laughs> So the athlete, you know, when you read, you read play. Oh no, we should, why didn't we sign him? You know, we could have signed Ron Davis, another one, great centre forward. Yeah. A couple of times, Harry was in form. Franny Lee, centre Franny Lee, bought uh, Ernie Hunt. You know, um, there's a result, but all managers are like that. But what Harry did up until he bought Howard, he always bought the right players. So he was missing out on players. It didn't really matter because he always bought the right players. Bought ball, ball, Kendall. It was after 67, where, that's where it, his magic in the transfer market started to go. He was buying the wrong players and missing out or refusing to buy players who, who would have taken the club forward. I say in the book, Martin Buchan was had played for Man United. We desperately needed a driving force at the back, like we had, because Labby had, you know, retired. De- needed that type of leader at the back at centre-half. And had he said, I'm not interested. I'm only interested in midfield players, which is a ludicrous position did to he, me. Did he, as a manager, did he work better with funds or with next to nothing? Uh, both. Okay. Both. At Sheffield Wednesday, and this is this is, this is is a thing as Harry is a manager, not just as Everton, is Harry is compared with his great managerial peers, you know, Bill Shankly, Matt Busby, Bill Nicholson, Dom Revy, who all had success at those clubs, you know, and United, Spurs, Liverpool, Leeds, and developed great teams, but within the one club, in the same environment. Harry's management was different to theirs, and this is completely lost now, because people only view his record at Everton against those four other managerial greats. When what you should do in the round is view his managerial record at Sheffield Wednesday and Everton, where he took over Sheffield Wednesday in 58. Had no money. He bought two players, I think, for £15,000 each. And um, got them within two years, second place in the league, FA Cup semi-final. I think he still had as being Sheffield Wednesday's greatest manager, <laughs> and he did that with no money. And then he went from there, the nose pressures, to going to Everton, where you've got loads of money, but you've got the, the pressure of the need for success. And mm. so it was that success in two different environments, of having no money and lots of money, that actually make him, you know, people miss that. Comparison, quite unique. With, in that yeah, respect, yeah, it's it. unique. And I say in the book that to me, his peak years as manager is probably fifty-eight to probably the mid-sixties. Mm. I think by the end of the sixties, I think he become a little bit blasé. Uh, he, he had a real vision and hunger in the early sixties, which I think had disappeared a little bit by the end of the decade. 
And he, he, I tell the story about J.L. Manning, who was a columnist in the in Daily Mail, said in 64th, he bought Fred Pickering. He said clubs shouldn't be allowed to buy players during during the season. Um, <laughs> Going back to the modern day. Because then if they can do that, we'll, we'll, we'll show... But managers like Harry Cattle will show how they can manage without, uh, you know, money, you know. And Harry did a very terse response. Well, you know, look at my record, the Sheffield Wednesday, when I had no money. Yeah. Uh, and to be fair, John Mannon, his name was, he reprinted Harry's letter in the in the Daily Mail the following week. Uh, and then Harry was, uh, to say Harry was a bit browned off about his understatement. But he did it with both, and people forget that. In two completely different environments. And um, that was not not as other other opposition managers did. Mm. You know, okay, maybe not had the opportunity to, but it was a massive achievement to do that across both clubs. Um, and again, without giving too much away, maybe a question for Preno as well. So, f- again, for for younger listeners who go, well, we were the Mersey Millionaires, and and my dad or my granddad have told me, but but we sold Alan Ball. How, did you know how can a, a club with with John Moore's at its helm? And so, and yeah. you know the tag of Mersey millionaires lose a player of Alan, but or, bec- or did they lose because of the well, business? I've heard so much about that in the past, and I've read so many stories about how devastated and traumatised Evertonians were. And I thought Gav gave a really really balanced uh, perspective on this, uh, both sides of the story. Uh, and he was a very very different footballer when Everton sold him to the one that they'd signed. Uh, you could argue he reinvented himself at Arsenal and became you know some more of a, a holding player if you like, but. It was okay at his record at Arsenal, but it certainly wasn't anything like what it had been at Everton. And you could argue that getting twice the money he got for him, um, it was a shrewd bit of business, but equally, the impact he was having on that dressing room, you know, the yeah. arguments with the uh, the teammates having been made captain, uh, and, you know, basically bullying people a lot of the time and throwing yeah. little, you know, sort of childish tantrums all the time. The timing possibly was right. And, uh, you know, not many fans around at that time would, would say that. But, you know, reading it from a dispassionate viewpoint, you know, so 40 odd years hence, you can understand possibly why he did it. Yeah. I'm just flicking through the book because, and, and um, you know, if you pick up a copy, you'll you'll see there's a great picture in here, Gav, isn't there? Of a rather uh, sta- <laughs> staged handshake between Catterick yeah. and Ball, isn't there? Uh, it reminds me of that time about, uh, remember, was it Lee Boyer and uh, was it Kieran's I had a fight at Newcastle yeah. and he had this yeah. shook hands the following Monday. Yeah, it's a belt it, that. They, they don't yeah. look, uh, you know, the body language there tells the tale. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a pen on that. That chapter in the book was by, to me, my favourite part of the book, um, eight and a half thousand words. Um, there's a lot of research into that, and there's a lot of stories in there which I think kind of, I've not really yeah. been seen before about some of, some of the stuff that went on behind the scenes. Um, my own view, which I, I say, is that Harry was right to, to sell him. Um, he, he spoke to. It, it all started with Ball, which I won't go into, but it all starts with an, an arg between him and Harry in the dressing room. Well, actually, it wasn't Ball shouting at Harry. <laughs> and, uh, after the defeat, home defeat to Sheffield United in September, August 71, and it went on from there. Um, and they played at Derby um, just before Christmas. And here's a bit of a coincidence for you. you know, I saw about this the other week. didn't realise the baseball ground at Derby, massive impact on the Holy Trinity and Harry. So that was Ball's last game. It was Harry's last game as manager. Right. And... Uh, Colin Harvey and Howard Kendall both got injuries in the same game there in September 73 that led to them both leaving the club and um, yeah and after the game at Derby Michael Charters one of Preno's esteemed predecessors said to Harry after the game said you know is Alan Ball shot and Harry said yeah 
Wow. Yeah. And he he was he was starting to change. I think because because he was captain, he was trying to do everything. It was a bit like alluded like being a bit like Wayne Rooney at Man United, you know, in his last year. He's just going on. If it's not working on one part of the pitch, I'll move to another part of the pitch. Mm. And he was he was often now playing with Kendall and Harvey rather than playing further up the pitch where he'd done his best uh, best work. And uh, there's a there was a great bit of analysis which to talk about which Brian James did. He used to write for the Mail, write for the Sunday Times. Don't remember that panel really. Very ahead of its time. The dad dated on Alan Ball playing for England in the mid sixties, yeah. and he did three or four games where twenty times he was seen per game going into the opposition box, and he did one game against Switzerland in nineteen seventy one, and there was only two times that he went in the opposition box because he was playing further than back, and they're saying like that, um, you don't want Alan Ball to do that because mm-hmm. you've got players who can do that who are better than him for a start. And I think there was that, so there's that tactical thing, his relationship, um, and the fact that he, he was burnt out at the age of 20, what was he, 26, 27 then. And I think Harry just said, yeah, I think we need to get rid. What I would say though is, and I, and I talk about this is, I think he got caught up off guard, Harry, on the day he sold down ball. It's not entirely certain he wanted to sell him. Right. That, then. Because that weekend, there was, thought, well, there's another Everton player who's up for sale for £150,000 and I think Bertie moves the Arsenal manager phones him up about the other player not about Alan Ball and I think Harry got a bit caught off guard I don't think he intended to sell Alan Ball on that Monday mm. he didn't walk into Belfield and say I'm going to sell him today I think he just got caught off guard because you don't sell your best player four days before Christmas do you? Mm. <laughs> you know for big money knowing that supporters want somebody coming in straight away to replace him just to uh, so you can explain the sale better. And then the FA Cup there down was always a massive thing and clubs never sold the best players before the yeah. cup started, you know. So I, 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 I remain to be convinced that it was a strategy of selling on the ball. I just think he got caught off guard. Interesting. Um, and, um, and, and history borne out that actually he had no idea he was going to buy. He, was, he, was, he tried to buy McShannon within 24 hours from Southampton but couldn't sell him. Um, he probably should have sold him the following summer, I think, and sorted like a strategy for players to come in, but he didn't. And and I think he, I think that was the surprising thing for me. I never realised until I did the book that actually, I'm not sure whether he wanted to sell him on that day. Mm. You know, but he should, he should have sold him, yeah. and, and I explain why. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating story that that because I mean, they were both complex characters. Harry was a complex character. Alan was a complex character. I think there was a little bit of. For modern, you know, modern day, you know, we say about Roy Keane being an extension of Alex Ferguson on the pitch because they were quite alike in some respects. Um, but then off the pitch, <laughs> they, were, they were at each other's throats. Yes. I think there was certainly in the last two years, of course, and there was a little bit of that with Alan and Harry. I think Harry wants him as captain, as an extension of him on the pitch. But ultimately, because I think they were very alike in some some respects. Um, and Alan said that that of his managers that he played under Harry was the one that was most like him like Keane and Ferguson off the pitch there was friction between them mm. and um, it, it was a fasc- it's a fascinating personal tale of their relationship as well which I tried to bring out in, bring out in the book Brilliant um, before we wrap up just thought, obviously as we spoke about the very start the obviously a theme running through the book is obviously how in a nutshell we weren't liked in the periods. Yeah. How do you think we're perceived now? Question for both of you. 
In, rela- think, in relation to their or just I generally? Think now just a okay. gen- I think that Everton are one of, maybe I'm like deluding myself here, but I genuinely believe that, you know, so we are like a lot of people's, you know, favourite second club, you know, so quite popular because we're unthreatening, uh, because we're a side that aspires to be, you know, sort of up in the top six, but isn't quite capable of doing it. And, you know, everyone likes like, you know, the the plucky underachiever, if you like, which we were under David Moyes. Maybe that's like evolved a little bit since Farhad Mashiri's come in and maybe not quite as popular. But I think people quite like that little plucky underachiever that, you know, so it's trying to get up there and um, achieving, you know, so beyond their means. Um, and you don't want to be that. You'd rather mm. be disliked and successful, you know, so as they were in the 1960s. Maybe that's changing a little bit under Mashiri, uh, maybe because we have got uh, more money now and we are spending huge sums of money. We're going back to that 1960s thing now, you- where you get, you know, your Paul Merson's talking about his ruin and the transfer market and you get people mocking, you know, the amount of money we spent on certain players. Maybe it is evolving a little bit and, and going and, back towards that. I just wondered whether how much of, you know, Fall, uh, spectacular fallout with Watford and, and you know academy yeah. bands and things you know mm. and I'm not saying that that's a, a direct comparison but no, in terms yeah. of just wondering how, how much of that has shaped I'm well, not the naughty boy stuff you know yeah, uh, I, I think I think there's lots lots of things that happened there that still affect us today I talk talk at some length at the end there's like a wrap up chapter at the end where I reflect on things and I talk about how unlike other clubs in the 60s, we didn't leave it sort of a legacy in terms of the culture of football. You know, we had like Liverpool and Shankly and the Cop and Leeds, mm. Daisy Leeds and yeah, yeah. Chelsea, you know, the Kings Road and, you know, Man United, you know, you mentioned the best Lord and Charlton and City, Malcolm Allison and, you know, Lee Summerby and Colin Bell. We didn't leave our mark within the culture of football. For, for, for the reasons I, I think we didn't get the press coverage that we deserved, you know. And I think, so constantly, when we look at the reflections on that decade, we appear to be on the outside looking in. And the reality and to, was we were in thick of th- it. Th- thick of it, but we're on the outside looking in. And I think that, that's why Harry, there's lots of reasons why Harry's not told about was a great manager to cover in there. And some of the, you know, some of the reasons are actually uh, pretty sensible. And, and I think that that is still there now. That we mm. still appear to be a little bit on the outside, looking in, um, and a, maybe a little bit. I know we changed, tried to change in the last couple of years. A little, that some of that insularity in the sixties was certainly there, perhaps. Um, since and it, there's lots of things that happened at that time that massively affect us as a football club now. For the simple reason that Morrison cats have convinced us, yeah. as as we stand it, you know, as today, the club as we, you know, you know some of the ground changes and stuff like this. New roofs Bell, and Bell, like, yeah. Belfield, and then obviously we moved to um, Vince Farm. All that came in the Catholic and Moors era, so they, they created the modern heaven, but they also created the modern football club as well. And um, that that legacy, that like that internal legacy for Everton is still there, but we never really left a wider one for, 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 for the game as a whole. I'll tell you what really jumped out at me in that, which I totally passed me by, is that the number of giants of English football who post-1970 fell from grace. I mean, yeah. Everson did, you know, spectacularly and took, yeah. you know, some time to, you know, so about 15 years to get back up to the heights again. Man United, 
even more so got relegated. Leeds United, okay, they got to a European Cup final in 75, yeah. but then, you know, sort of fell after that. Tottenham got relegated. Yeah. Wolves, you know, fell from grace. Just relegated. Liverpool was the only club, really, that managed yeah. to survive that and actually, you know, sort of build on it. Uh, it just, it, I'd never really thought of it that way before. Yeah. And it was, it was Chelsea, Chelsea got relegated, Man City yeah. ended up getting relegated. Yeah. We, that left only two clubs, Rush and Liverpool. And so there was a big opportunity for us yeah. to, to, to go forward, but we made the wrong managerial appointments in Bingham. Liverpool made the right managerial appointments, Paisley maybe accidentally. There's a sliding doors moment there where we could have had Bobby Robson as manager yeah. in 73, and Liverpool could have appointed Jackie Charlton yeah. in wow. 74. And the whole history then of the next 10 years could have been completely different. And, we could have and got, the rest, maybe. Yeah, because if you, and this not, I'm not denigrating <laughs> Liverpool there because obviously they're a great team, certainly under, under Paisley. But one of the reasons they were really successful from 70 to 85 was the fact that their traditional big rivals, as half of them were playing in the second division yeah. in that time. Well, you look at the teams that finished second. Yeah, I say, I say that in the book, yeah. Watford, Southampton, <laughs> Ipswich, QPR, QPR wow. Notch yeah. Forest. They yeah. were all provincial teams. Some of them, most of them have been in the second division in the 60s, but they, they, they had, um, they'd filled that gap. Mm. Um, to replace the traditional powerhouses of, of English football and there was only they made a couple of changes in the game in 83 one of them being that uh, the home team kept all receipts where previously they gave it 20% of the away team but you got the ludicrous position some teams could get make more from going away to Anfield and Old Trafford and what they would <laughs> do from their home game you know and that restored that restored some of the power financially to the bigger clubs and then that would carry on with the, with the Premier League. And it was only when Howard, Howard, Everton, and then it was George Graham under Arsenal, then Alex Ferguson, and then Leeds. And then the Premier League helped restore that natural balance that had been in the 60s. And I quote that fact that when City won the title in 2012, it was first title for 44 years, nine clubs were in the top 10 in both seasons, the same, same right. nine clubs. So that just shows you how the Premier League has restored yeah. that natural power, you know, that the natural powerhouses of English football back to the top again but there was that vacuum between 17 and 85 that Liverpool filled <laughs> perfectly you know um, not, and they had a great team as well but it was, yes. it was made easy for them but if we'd have got our appointment right in 73 we could have easily won two, three four league titles with because we had the money still was that 73? Was that the one where you'd actually shaken hands on a deal and uh, he refused to come because a national newspaper carried the story, yeah. got the exclusive and yeah. said that, you know, it's that, Robson forever. That was 77, that wasn't was it? Yeah, time, yeah, wasn't yeah. It? That was when he said on local radio, yeah. and he used to tell you Bobby Robson's the next ever manager. Yeah. And he, he was, yeah, so 77, 73. Um, now, I don't think he wanted it. I think he used Evan quite, uh, and Barcelona, I think, quite uh, yeah. skillfully in terms of negotiating Mm. new contracts on the back of incest from Everton but Bobby would have been a great manager for Everton at 73 he had that hunger and desire that Katzik had in 61 you know we'd done a similar sort of um, apprenticeship like Katzik had done at Sheffield Wednesday at Ipswich yeah and um, he would have been would have been a tremendous manager for us he ends up getting Billy Bingham um, and that Ipswich team he created played the kind of football that Evertonians believe they yeah, know, yeah. have a God-given right to see. Yeah. It was beautiful, a wonderful football yeah. team. And, and with it would have been a perfect perfect fit yeah. in 73. Um, and it, it didn't happen, sadly. Um, and uh, and we, we missed out. But yeah, Dave's right. I, I touch on that at the back. That we, as Everton fans, we said the 70s were awful. <laughs> Actually, they were quite good compared to yeah. a lot of other clubs. Our, our problem was is the local rivals across the park were, 
we'll win, win an Anderson, you know. Well, that's maybe for another. Yeah. You know, never know. I might that's for the sequel. That yeah, that's for the sequel. <laughs> um, so, go on, Gav, then tell the listeners how we can get a copy, where from, etc., etc. You can you can buy it on there, but you, the Kubatana, the the um, the publishers, you can go to their website. Must say, he's done a fabulous job as ever with yeah, the Kubatana the cover. Yeah. Um, really evocative cover. You can buy it on usual um, sites, Amazon, etc. On the internet and uh, from Waterstones Bookshop, where I'm doing a, a, a signing with uh, Derek Temple on Saturday the the 28th, and talk about Derek. Yeah, being the book, what a great and albeit underrated player he was. Some nice stories about Derek about the type of clubs that were interested mm. in him as well. Yeah, underrated player Derek, and uh, yeah, so all the usual. Usual sites. And I was going to say, you, you are going to be out and about more. You mentioned that one at Waterstones. You yeah, yeah, yeah. Dates. There'll be a few more events between now and Christmas. Or what yeah. Out of interest, how long did it take you to, to do it from start to finish? Eight years. Wow. Yeah, I started in 2011. Not all of that time is doing yeah. other bits, and, but I started research in 2011. The thing about that book, it's the research that's gone into it. Mm. That's what I wanted to do. I, want, I wanted to write it as an outsider, not as an Everton fan. But as an outsider looking in, using the evidence and, the, and yeah, the facts yeah, yeah, and I didn't want to sort of bring an Ev- being an Everton fan into it. Because if I was a, if I was a supporter of another club, how would I write this book? How many, pe- how many people do. do you think you've you've spoken to as part of that research? I, I didn't speak to anybody. That was right. the other thing. Okay. Of course, there's going to be my view on things. Right. Okay. That, that this is it. this is my view based on all my research, which has taken me to countless days in the British Library in London for a start you know <laughs> where I discovered some great great things you know some uh, some really incessant stuff um, you know and, and so there's a lot of I, I, I wanted to do that to really tell that true touch story of the decade you know um, because we are a massively un, unreported club in terms of books so, so what's the next one then Gav you mentioned this you never know there might be another one you know on the, on the pipeline <laughs> but yeah it's good yeah there has to be you know, there has to be a it's a, the 70s was just as interesting yeah you know but yeah interesting well you. we look forward to that and hopefully not in eight years maybe a bit, a bit no, soon no 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 yeah <laughs> uh, but for now uh, Gav Buckland Money Can't Buy His Love Everton in the 1960s is out available and we highly fully recommend you pick up a copy so hope you've enjoyed this special edition of the Royal Blue Podcast with myself Dave Prentice in conversation with Gavin Buckland thank you for listening you've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo